Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked all the way to the 16th through the 36th lines of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. I am so thrilled that you're on this walk with me. Do you know that we are approaching, not real quickly, but we are approaching the dead middle of comedy. Well, I don't know if it's so dead, but we are approaching the very middle of the giant poem comedy right now. Again, we're at Purgatorio Canto 7, line 16 through 36. This is my English translation of the Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You and all, all that stuff about what you can do out there. Let me just say where we were. We had come out of Canto 6, in which Dante and Virgil had come across a crouching lion soul <laughs> on the steps of Ante Purgatory, the parts of Purgatory before its main gate. This soul heard Virgil mention Mantua, jumped up, embraced him as a fellow countryman. The poet launched into a long invective against Italian strife. Then we returned to the plot, and now Virgil has told this soul, Sordello, who he is. I am Virgil. In fact, the only time that Virgil names himself in all of comedy. Let us then move on to line 16 through 36 of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. Oh, glory of the Latins, Sordello said, through whom our language showed its full potential. Oh, timeless source of prestige for the spot I'm from. What merit or what grace presents you to me? If I'm worthy enough to hear your words, tell me if you came from hell and even from which cloister? Through all the circles of the kingdom of sorrow... Virgil replied to him, I have come to this spot. A power from the heavens set me in motion, and I come along with it, not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. I lost a way to see the high sun that you so desire, and that I came to understand too late. There's a place down there that's not sad because of torments, but only because of dark Darkness, where the lamentations don't sound like wailings, but only like sighs. That's where I hang out, along with the innocent babies who got bit by the teeth of death long before they could be cleansed of human guilt. That's where I hang out, along with the ones who were not clothed in the three holy virtues, but who knew the other four without any other fault and followed those four. Incredibly interesting Virgil and babies, Virgil and the notion of why he's down in hell, and Virgil and his journey, which apparently doesn't really include the pilgrim, at least if you listen to Virgil. So let's talk through this passage. We're going to take it just bit by bit straight down the passage before I get to a larger question in interpretation for the passage itself. Let's just get moving. So Delo says, oh, glory of the Latins. And the word he uses there is not only Latin, as in you speak Latin, but what he means, basically, uh, the glory of the inhabitants of the Italian peninsula. It's an 
easy way to kind of talk about a group of people who share linguistic, although not political, share linguistic uh, communities with each other. So, glory of the Latins, through whom our language showed its full potential. A timeless source of prestige for the spot I'm from. What in the world does Flordelo mean by this? Our language? What language? Uh, Sordelo did not write in Latin. Sordelo wrote in Languedoc or Provençal. Yes, Sordelo was an Italian poet, but he wrote in his poetry, at least what we know of it, in Languedoc. I should tell you that there are 43 extant chansons that we have from Sordelo. Undoubtedly, he wrote more. I should just say, before we continue down this path, that Provençal, or Languedoc, was probably the preeminent literary vernacular of its day. I know we want to think it's Tuscan because of Dante, but honestly, across the central European landscape, even all the way up into the Holy Roman Empire, and even Ah, up into France itself and Paris, Languedoc was still recognized as this preeminent poetic vernacular, the place of honor given to it by its expressive abilities. So, Sordello writes in Languedoc, at least what we know of what he wrote, but he didn't write in Latin. What is he saying here? What language? Our language to its full potential. You should know that this has caused an eruption of commentary. There's a couple of ways that you can answer this. You can say that Virgil wrote in Latin and Latin was the vernacular for Virgil in the same way that Languedoc or Provençal was the vernacular for Sordello, in the same way that medieval Florentine is the vernacular for Dante. So what he's basically saying is you showed what was the potential of the language that people spoke at the time. It's a little bit silly. Um, I don't know that Dante knows this, but it's a little bit silly because if you know anything about the Latin of Virgil, you know that Virgil writes some of the toughest Latin out there. It's really complicated and unbelievably astute and learned Latin. I don't know, vernacular. Virgil didn't talk like my grandfather who drove an oil truck. <laughs> Virgil talked like my PhD advisor, so uh, I don't know, vernacular, but it is one way to say it. There are two ironies, at least two ironies here. Sir Delo doesn't seem to care that Virgil is damned. And this seems a little weird. Sardello's really laying it on thick, and he's really praising Virgil and bowing down like an inferior. So the notion that Virgil is from hell, it's got the you know, smell of sulfur about it. To put it bluntly, doesn't seem to bother Sordello all that much. Isn't that curious? And two, when Virgil spoke back in Canto 6, I, this is the part that just makes me laugh out loud. When Virgil spoke back in Canto 6, he didn't even get a full line out. He muttered something about Mantua, and Sordello jumped up and embraced him as a fellow countryman. So if Virgil is this source of eloquence, 
Then it's from what he wrote. It's not what he said back in Canto 6 because he didn't even get a full sentence out. He got about, oh, you know, a partial line out muttering something about Mantua. And so Delo jumped up. And when Virgil says who he is, we talked about this in the last episode of the podcast, Virgil does not identify himself through his works but through his name. I am Virgil. So Sordalo knows that Virgil's language shows it to its full potential. Interesting again, right? He's not saying that you wrote Latin so fluently. He's saying that you showed its power, its potency, its potential, especially in the medieval Florentine. So he's focusing on the ability. If I wanted to translate it another way, I might say you showed what our language was capable of. That's a very different notion than you wrote so beautifully. And it brings into question the utility of a language. What Sordello is saying here is a little murky. Is he saying that Virgil used Latin in such a way that he communicated about Caesar Augustus's greatness and wrote a great tragic poem in which he expressed fully the emotional and political landscape available to him? Maybe. And that potential then translates into the modern day that you can do this in other languages, maybe, but then there's that problem of our language. What does he mean by our language? Now, you and I might say, oh, romance languages, they're connected, and that's fair, and it's a fair way to look at it, but do medievals have modern notions of linguistics? Surely they recognize that Provençal and Florentine are related to Latin. Surely they can see cognate roots. But I don't know that they know full modern linguistic theory. That's a little tough to pin down. Dante works at this in his treatise on the vernacular and works at what is a good source of the vernacular to write in. We could go back to that, but we might as well just sit here in this poem and see this as a little bit of a puzzle, perhaps, that Dante has put in front of us to figure out exactly how poetic meaning is made. Let's move on. What merit, Sordello says, or what grace presents you to me? Again, see, laying it on really thick. If I'm worthy enough to hear your words, dude, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. You are worthy. Don't worry about it. But okay, if I'm worthy enough to hear your words, tell me if you came from hell or even from which cloister. Now, Virgil has already admitted that he lost heaven back in line eight. So Sardello seems to be asking the details. I want to know where you came from. How'd you get out? He wants to know the whole thing. And Virgil's going to tell him in the next six lines. But what he's going to tell him mm, causes us to wince just a little bit. Virgil says, through all the circles of the kingdom of sorrow, I have come to this spot. Now, that is really true. We know that we have walked through all those circles of hell. But here's the the thing that's so interesting. Um, I have come to this spot. You know, there's somebody standing right next to Virgil, uh, this little pilgrim right here. And uh, this little pilgrim, Dante, he's the one the journey's for. In this reply, Virgil seems to make the journey all about himself. 
I did this. I came through all the circles. I've walked here to this spot. Well, you only walked here because Beatrice sent you to help Dante walk here. It's not like you set out from limbo and you got here under your own steam or from, as he says, a power from the heavens. But that is what he says. A power from the heavens. Yep. We remember that set me in motion and I come along with it. I come along with it, not and I am sent to aid someone else. Is this Virgil's trip across the known universe? I don't think so. We got a couple ways that we can look at this, but let's finish what he says and then we'll come back to it. Not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. So he seems to reiterate kind of what he said at line eight. We'll talk about this in a minute. I lost a way to see the high sun. Notice he speaks paraphrastically about God, the sun, that you so desire and that I came to understand too late. Okay, let's go back to what he says. Not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. It is a gorgeous line. It's a line worthy of Pierre de la Vigne. Balanced, put together. It even sounds beautiful. Non per fa, ma per non fare. It's just so gorgeously, rhetorically constructed. But is this true? Not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. It's not true for two reasons. Although it does call us back to Inferno and Limbo. It's not true because of original sin. And in fact, original sin is about to come up in this passage when Virgil starts talking about the innocent babies. The only reason the innocent babies would be there is because of original sin. So original sin is sitting here and Virgil has no way in Christian theology to overcome original sin. So, okay, maybe, but the passage seems to make other comments. And then also, uh, what if Cato? I'm going back to Cato again. Doesn't Cato kind of put the lie to this? Cato somehow got out. How did he get out? How did he get up here in this place where he doesn't even want to talk about Marcia, his lover back in limbo? In the end, here's what I think. Virgil still doesn't get it. Virgil can't change. Even seeing redemption in its early glimmers here in Purgatorio, he still cannot get it and see it. And so his theological explanations at this point are still a tad murky. They still don't actually understand the full ramifications of Christian theology. Now, this is going to plague us in the future, because in the future, Virgil, as I've already told you, is going to have one of the great philosophical treatises of comedy and a treatise so great that it gives a structure to all of the thought of comedy. And it's going to be about the theology of the afterlife. Given that he knows that, which lies ahead of us, he knows something more than I'm saying. But at this point, Virgil's answers are a little troubling and they're a little self-centered. This isn't his trip. 
So let's look at how Virgil talks about Limbo, where he's from. He says, there's a place down there that's not sad because of torments. That's true. In Inferno 4, line 26, we're told that there's not wailing, only sighs. So he says it's not sad because of torments, but only because of darkness, where the lamentations don't sound like wailings, but are only sighs. Yep, there we go. Inferno 4, line 26. But it's that line, but only because of darkness. Darkness? What kind of darkness? It must be moral darkness, because if you remember Limbo, you remember there was a dome of light sitting over it. Darkness? Is Dante rethinking Limbo? You could make that argument. Dante's rethinking what Limbo looks like after the journey across hell. Has Dante slipped? The common reference here is that Dante's pen slips, meaning when critics say that, they mean Dante's kind of forgotten what he wrote, and so his pen slips here and he says darkness but it's not really dark in the world i don't think that i think dante would be too aware of what he's written instead it seems as if virgil is coloring limbo in a certain way and i'm going to pin it on virgil you can pin it on the poet dante you can pin it on the changing notion of limbo i'm going to say that virgil seems to be either using the term darkness to mean a moral darkness or he himself is making Limbo seem more tragic than in fact it is in order to pump up his creds. Well, that's a very difficult, cynical reading, but I think you could advance it. He goes on. That's where I hang out, along with the innocent babies who got bit by the teeth of death long before they could be cleansed of human guilt. There's that original sin. Now, babies were barely mentioned in Inferno 4. They were just lumped in with, oh, there's all these people around and some babies, too. Now we get three whole lines about the babies, and it's getting very Thomistic, very St. Thomas Aquinas. These babies are damned because they couldn't ever be baptized. They couldn't be cleansed of human guilt. If you remember in the medieval church, they baptized on Easter Sunday. So you had from your birth date to Easter Sunday to kind of exist outside of the world of baptism. And then there were these great baptismal throngs on Easter Sunday. Well, then it seems here that we have an implicit reference to original sin, which then is kind of troubling in the face of line 25 above, not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. No, it's more than that. You were born corrupted in traditional Thomistic Christian theology. So what is it? Oh, I think Dante's tripping on his own trip wires. (laughs) here, and I'll explain that in a minute. Let's just go on with Virgil for a sec. That's where I hang out, along with the ones who were not clothed in the three holy virtues. He's talking about the three theological virtues, faith, love, and hope, but knew the other four. He's talking about the four cardinal virtues in Christian theology. We'll have much more to say about this down the line, but that is prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. I hang out with the ones, those Greek poets and Islamic thinkers, who practiced prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, but they really didn't know the Christian notions of faith, hope, and love. Okay, let me go back to that comment about Dante's tripping over his own tripwires here. What Dante wants, above all, is for the human will to become the predominant mechanism of salvation. You choose to be damned, you choose to be saved, and you make 
choices along the way through, we'll get to this, defects of love that cause you either to end up in hell or end up on the road to heaven. We'll talk way more about that down the line. But that's what Dante wants. The human will as the preeminent mechanism, the, well, to use fancy words, the necessary and sufficient cause for redemption. Well, you know what? You can't really say that with the human will corrupted by original sin in Christian theology, because original sin is always going to be sitting back behind you. (laughs) I happen to come out of the Calvinist tradition of Presbyterianism, and so I know a lot about the uh, depravity of humans and original sin. But it's still part of the orthodox thinking even in Dante's day. Dante is running against church doctrine on original sin, and because he's running against it and yet writing an intensely Christian poem, there are tripwires everywhere. Listen, if you're going to write an intensely Christian poem, you have got to follow Christian orthodoxy. Otherwise, you're going to trip. And I think Dante trips in this passage. There is a little bit uh, about original sin and a little bit about not what I did, because about what I didn't do. So it's not my fault, really. Sin of omission, not a sin of commission. And yet later, we're going to find out that essentially all sin is a sin of commission. So it's difficult, and Dante is trying to work out the place of the human will. And given that, we can see how modern Dante is. He may be standing in 1300, okay, 1315, 1317, but 1300. He may be standing there writing this, yet at the same time, he's trying to make human motivation central to the redemptive trajectory of the soul. In so doing, we can see that modern humanistic notion running around inside traditional Christianity, which would condemn babies who had not been baptized, condemn them not to be able to get into the good parts of the afterlife. I think what we are looking at is the renovation of Virgil. Virgil is coming to a place of significance, partly through his words, and he has been at places of significance throughout Inferno, despite being befuddled at the gates of Dis when the messenger from heaven has to save them, despite occasionally uh, slipping up in his own notions of what should happen, as he does in the Malabolja with the demons and the pitch with the barriters, and trusting the demons when he shouldn't trust them. Despite those slips, he's still basically on center stage in Inferno. And I think we're coming back and we're renovating him a bit through the poet's work. And we're trying to figure out how we can get him back toward a position of honor and a position of centrality as the guy. He should not be here. I don't know how many times I can say this. He should not be here. Yet here he is. And furthermore, he's going to have to go back to where he's from. And furthermore, Cato doesn't. So what exactly is Dante up to? It is this continual attempt to negotiate with not only Virgil, but through Virgil with the past. Listen, there was a whole world of great writing, great philosophical thought, and beautiful, unbelievable knowledge that existed outside of the Christian sphere. What do I do with that? 
as a Christian poet. Dante is trying to negotiate that space. It is a very difficult space, right? This comes from the Crusades, partly. When they set off, even on the first crusade, you know, when Godfrey of Bouillon sets off from where now is in Bouillon, Belgium, but when he sets off from his castle and they walk across Europe in the in the 1000s. It's unbelievable. Walk across Europe and get to the Levant. What they discover is the Abbasid Caliphate, the glory of Baghdad, the unbelievable glory of Aleppo. And in fact, over the course of the Crusades, they discover the glory of Constantinople. What they discover is that they thought back in France and the Holy Roman Empire, they thought that they were the pinnacle of human civilization. They thought, oh my gosh, we have the Christian message and we're just, you know, we're so civilized and we're so learned. And then they came to Constantinople and Baghdad and Aleppo and they found glittering unbelievably learned civilizations, and they didn't know what to make of it. The Abbasid Caliphate literally made their heads twist around, well, literally because they eventually got kind of defeated by the Islamic forces, but I mean, it made their mental landscapes twist, because suddenly back there in Bouillon, that looks pretty much like a pit. That doesn't look so civilized compared to what's going on over here in Baghdad or Constantinople, which this unbelievable center of learning. This is still Dante's problem. This really intense learning from these Greek philosophers, from these Islamic thinkers, is outside the Christian sphere. But what do I do with it? How do I make it fit? Because it's so right. It's so smart. It's so real. It, it so determines and so elucidates the human condition. How can I kick it out as a Christian? And Dante can't. Some Christian writers just kick it straight out. Not Dante. And so he is caught in a continual space of renegotiation, and that continual space of renegotiation finds its node, its most pressing point, in the figure of Virgil. Thanks so much for being part of this completely wild passion project with me. I really appreciate your support. If you would like to support this podcast further, let me say that there is a PayPal link both in the player for this podcast, in the notes for this podcast. There are notes below every episode and also on my website, MarkScarborough.com. If you can donate any money to the support of this podcast, that would be great. I have, in fact, turned down sponsors. I just turned down a sponsor this week because I just want to keep it completely independent. But it does have a lot of fees associated with it. But if you can help out with that, that's great. And if you can't, that's great too because I just appreciate your being on the walk with me and appreciate you're coming to terms with the poem as I'm coming to terms with it in Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I can't wait for what's next.